Welcome everyone to episode 45 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My special guest this week is Captain Brandon Dryman from the Indianapolis Fire Department, where he serves as a coordinator of firefighter wellness and support. So he's a 40-hour gig. It's a job that I'm actually pretty envious about. So all he does is concentrate on firefighters' well-being. So whether that's peer support, whether that's fitness, that's his that's his role. You know, cancer prevention, he's on top of all that stuff. So uh, we're going to discuss those different aspects of his job and also how he got there. So going through his personal battles and to the point in which he now pays everything forward. So without further ado, let's bring him in, Captain Brandon Dryman. All right, welcome everyone to this week's episode of the 25 Live Today, my special guest is Captain Brandon Dryman from the Indianapolis Fire Department. Brandon, thank you for joining me this afternoon. Yeah, thank you for having me, Jim. All right. Well, you know, I always love my indie firefighters. Um, they've always taken good care of me. Uh, <laughs> so, so just because of that, you're already cool with me before we even started. <laughs> so, got a leg up. I like that's it. a whole nother story. <laughs> oh, no, I'll, let's start off with that story real quick. Uh, last year at FDIC, when we actually had FDIC before yeah. this Corona stuff happened, my truck got broken into um, the last day I was there. And so, you know, it's, it's not a long drive, but a two-hour drive. I actually ended up going to your old station, 44s, and those mm -hmm. guys hooked me up and, and uh, basically made me a window to get me home. So much much love for you guys. It was awesome. Uh, we appreciate it. 160 years we've had some time to, to learn how to take care of each other. So that's a good thing. Absolutely. So you started in this fire service back when you were pretty young, right? Yeah, I was uh, 16 when I first got involved in the fire service as a, a junior firefighter with a, a combination department down in southern Indiana. So uh, as soon as I could join, I joined up. Nice. But but that's um, not. So yeah. Yeah. That's not where you really wanted to end up being. Right. You had other career aspirations. Yeah, I um, I had an eye towards actual actually getting into law enforcement. Um, you know, I grew up like a lot of Gen Xers. You know, I grew up with Johnny and Roy and emergency. So, uh, and and one out of twelve was on. But in particular, I, emergency had a big impact on me. So I knew I wanted to work in the emergency services in some capacity. And so went through college and was trying to figure out my life a little bit. I had a business degree and didn't really feel like doing anything with that. It was kind of a non-directional choice on my part. But uh, then I decided, you know what, I, federal law enforcement sounded appealing with the FBI or CIA, things like that. I looked into a lot of them and landed on the Customs Service. Um, and one of the ways into the Customs Service as an agent was to be an attorney. And I... I felt that I had the capabilities to go to law school and, and do okay. So that's what I ended up doing. I went to law school and applied with the Customs Service and made it a long way through the interview process, actually, to the final stage. And as part of that, I found out for the first time that I was colorblind. Like I never, it's not something I ever really realized was an issue, but it was a disqualifying factor uh, to work for the Customs Service. So now I had kind of a law degree. Uh, that I, and no other real prospect because I had put all my eggs in that basket. So I had worked uh, during law school as a, a prosecutor in Southern Indiana. I got an early practice license, and that was one way that I could have some experience with law enforcement in a courtroom setting. 
so I actually went back to Evansville and was a prosecutor there for a couple of years. Uh, and it just, I did not like it. I, I didn't like being in court. I didn't like being, um, all the aspects of the criminal justice system and the infighting, and that's a whole other story in itself, but it just wasn't for me. And the city county building where I worked was actually right next to Evansville Fire Department headquarters. And there was a constant string. They had a, a rescue squad in there and an engine and a truck. So it was a full house and all day long, I'd look out my window and, and see the fire engine and, and the rescue and everything going by. And I was like, man, that's, that's really where my heart is. Um, and, you know, I, I continued to volunteer uh, throughout that time, but I just, I knew that that's where my heart was. And my brother was on the job um, up in Indianapolis at the time, and he told me, hey, we're hiring. If you're interested, you ought to put in. So I did and, and got hired on the first try. Uh, and that was uh, almost 19 years ago. It'll be 19 years on June 4th. So that's worked out a lot better than my two years practicing law. So, But it was a a weird nice. road to get here, that's for sure. So, you know, it's funny because we always talk about uh, the firehouse lawyers. And wherever <laughs> you're at, like, you know, we're all like, uh, we know enough. Like, you know, just acting like we know the law or the the contract or whatever it may be. And you're an actual lawyer. So I'm sure people, that that, uh, that kitchen table talk was, hey, what about this? It did. It certainly did uh, come up. But an interesting thing, and this is particularly as a prosecutor was was bad but I, I i know there were criminals that knew more about the law than i did so there may be maybe a few firefighters out there that know more about the law than i do too so uh yeah the old firehouse lawyer i got the t-shirt i'm going to use it <laughs> nice nice so you know how how did everything go with the department uh starting out i mean you you probably were you obviously started this back when you were 16 when you were younger you had a you had a little bit of a gap there where you weren't doing anything, but you also had your big brother to kind of tell you what you're getting into. Um, yeah. Did did he give you really a, a you think a, a fair idea of of how big city fire department was going to be? Not so much. I mean, we kind of I think he probably just kind of took it for granted that hey you you've. Uh, You've worked in this industry for some time as a volunteer, and, and I worked on, on ambulance companies as well, and, and some busy ambulance services um, in southern Indiana. So I, I did have a lot of exposure. Um, I, I, I knew what to expect going into it, I think. Um, you know, it was a tough road, actually, kind of starting out. My One of my first calls uh, as a firefighter was a, a fatality with five people who were killed. Um, three kids, one of whom was an infant. And that was like really early on. So I had a, a pretty bad traumatic exposure to that. And then went to EMT school uh, when I was 17. And then as soon as I turned 18, got certified. And my first 911 response on the ambulance was actually on a family member who had shot himself. Um, and that long term, that that is really what ended up causing me some issues is I never really dealt with that. At 18, I wasn't at all prepared uh, emotionally um i just didn't have the maturity for that and and at this point i don't know you know a lot of people wouldn't uh, even with some some years under their belt um but i you know i came into the the big city so to speak with a lot of that stuff under my belt um 
one of the big disadvantages of uh, the volunteer fire service and the rural fire service, if you can say it's a disadvantage, is that you know a lot of the people you run on. So I probably on some level anticipated that that would be better, and I think it was uh, coming to a larger city that you just don't really run on that many people you know. Um, so that, but I think that early exposure kind of set things up for me um, for a, a downward spiral for sure. Um, as far as self-medicating and things like that, because I, you know, back in the early nineties, you, we just toughen up kid. Right. I mean, that was the attitude overwhelmingly. So that's, I just kind of tried to deal with it the way firefighters deal with a lot of things with alcohol. And, uh, that's, you know, that kind of persisted from a very early age through uh, a great deal of my, my service in, in, uh, in the fire department. So when you turned to alcohol, was that um, an off-duty thing? The first first night off, first day off, second day off, was it day on? I mean, how how far deep did you end up going down that, that kind of rabbit hole there? It was, I never drank on duty, um, ever. And I never had a desire to. Uh, and I think a lot of firefighters with alcohol problems, find themselves in that boat. Uh, when we're on duty, we actually, that's where we want to be, right? We're with our brothers or with our sisters. Anybody who's done this job knows that some of the best times of your life are at that firehouse, sitting around the table, watching movies, playing basketball, just, you know, busting each other's chops, whatever it may be. That's where the good times are. And you get on the truck and you make calls and people stand on the sidewalk and wave at you. And it's great. You know, you're, you are, that rock star, you have that feeling, but that's not really our reality. So then we leave the firehouse, we take off the uniform, right? We go home and now reality sets in of family and obligations and finances. And it's just not as fun. And that was my issue is I would come down from that high of the fire service. And on top of that, also dealing with traumatic stress and, and nightmares and bad memories and wanting to go to sleep. And that's really when I turned to alcohol. But it was certainly, you know, when I would leave the fire station uh, there towards the end of my drinking career, um, the CVS pharmacies here, the one by my house, opened at 8 a.m. And that would be, you know, I could hang around the firehouse, have a few cups of coffee, and then time it out. So as soon as they opened, I would be driving past. I'd go in, and uh, I was a bottom-shelf shopper, um, get more bang for my buck, right? So... I would, I would get my big bottle of vodka and I would get started at eight o'clock and that would, you know, for the 48 hours I was off, that was what I did and interspersed in there. I'd like to cook. So I would come up with some reason that I needed to go get a bottle of wine to cook with or some beer for a stew, you know, and then use half a beer for that and drink all the rest myself. Um, but it was, it was definitely game on. Now my, what really saved me, I think when I, uh, finally came around and got better was since I didn't drink at the firehouse, I didn't have withdrawal the way a lot of people with alcohol use disorder do. And that was a, a big saving grace because I didn't have to really detox. I would detox on probably the first six hours of my shift. You know, I might have a headache or throw up or have diarrhea, whatever it may be. But because of that, when I finally did stop drinking, I, I had a smoother road than a lot of firefighters have. But uh, 
that's also not to downplay how intense my 48 hours off were uh, because it was it was a drunken stupor for 48 hours. How many years did that go on for? Oh, I don't know if I could necessarily put a number on it. You know, probably at least five to seven years, I would say it was that intense. And it's it's weird because alcohol use disorder, any substance use disorder, uh, you know, starts out small. And if you look at how these things are diagnosed now, we really don't look at an alcoholic versus a non-alcoholic. It's alcohol use disorder is a spectrum from no issues to mild to moderate to severe because we recognize that these things are progressive. Um, and that's why now we try and catch them much earlier. If you're engaging in reckless behavior just a couple times a year, that's problematic. We need to figure out why you're doing that. So my problem started off fairly small and then just over time progressed into this monster. Um, the alcohol use disorder scale in the, in the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistic, Stati Statistical Manual, easy for me to say, which is what behavioral health clinicians use um, to diagnose conditions. Uh, but in the DSM-5, there are 11 pointers or points that they look at to determine how severe an alcohol use disorder is. And probably for five years, I was a nine out of 11, which is if you have six out of 11, that's considered severe. So I was I was well down the rabbit hole, as you said. And, you know, the, the good thing is, and I really like to focus on the positive, too, is that if you can be a nine out of 11 for five years and come out on the other side with a lot of growth, as a result, there's hope for a lot of people who maybe recognize they've got a problem that if you get if you get the help and you're serious about it, you know, people recover all the time. People get better from this all the time, uh, and I'm proof of it. So there is a silver lining there, um, but it's a miracle that I haven't had more health problems as a result of that than I do. I'm, I'm very fortunate in that regard. No, that's an, that's great to hear. I'm I'm thankful for that. I've I've kind of lived. I've kind of dealt with that too, not personally myself, but seeing my dad. Uh, basically being a functional alcoholic for my entire life until, until recently. And and uh, I've seen how he can even turn it off after doing it for literally decades. So yeah. you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. And it's, you know, a big part of it is is the support you can get as a result. And that's people with, with alcohol problems recognize they have a problem. And what ends up happening is is we we end up feeling like we're being nagged. As a result, people are always telling us we need to quit. People are always telling us we have a problem. It's like we know we have a problem. We're just not sure how to deal with it. And that's where I got. And then we can get into the particulars of my situation, how it all went down. But I had a lot of support from the fire department, um, well, which probably wouldn't have happened years ago. But uh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask you, how did you end up um, quitting? I ended up, you know, my kind of a expected scenario. My wife had been telling me for years that, that I had a problem. Um, but I, you know, she was the problem. I didn't have a problem with it. She did. I had it under control. All firefighters drink. It's not that big a deal. So I lived in that denial, which is um, what addicts do. And then finally, one day I got called down for a random 
uh, breath test and drug screen for the fire department. And we have this, I don't know what you, what you would call a folklore in the fire service or at least in Indianapolis that if you stop drinking by 10, you'll be okay. Like that's kind of, that's the hard cutoff. And if, as long as you quit by 10, if you get called at 8 a.m. for your, your screen, you'll be good to go. That's plenty of time for the alcohol to get out of your system. Um, that is not true as it, <laughs> as it turns out. Um, I, I, I tried that and it did not work. So I got called down for a random and I actually joked on my way out of the firehouse. So I was like, yeah, I probably won't be seeing you guys for a little bit. Uh, Cause I, I thought I was going to be fine. Um, and I felt fine and I, I wasn't intoxicated. Um, but when I had the, the screen, I, I had still had alcohol in my system from the night before. So I had a, a positive breath test. Uh, and that, if you've ever, we've all heard the term being scared straight, that did it. Like all the things my wife had been telling me now, I couldn't ignore, I couldn't deny that anymore. And now what's gonna happen with my job? I, I had never considered looking at the general order for what it might be if you got caught with alcohol in your system because that wasn't gonna happen to me. So when I got popped, I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, I thought, are they going to fire me? But what's the deal? Um, so I sat terrified in a locked room until um, a member of the administration drove to get me because uh, I couldn't drive my car, but I knew I had to go to headquarters to, to face the music, so to speak. So um, admin came and got me and took me to headquarters. Um, and at the time, our current chief, Ernie Malone, um, was assistant chief of the fire department and he handled these issues. So I was going into this thinking, you know, I need to get my union rep and I'm going to, you know, face termination. And, but chief Malone, you know, he, he laid it out for me that, you, you know, I had a couple options. If, if I just wanted to take a suspension, I would basically be suspended for a month without pay. And that would be that any other substance use offenses during my career. And I would be terminated. Option two was take a 24-hour suspension without pay for employee assistance program, see what they have to say. When they say I'm okay to return to work, I come back to work with the same caveat that if I have another substance use-related offense during my career, I get terminated. So I was like, well, option two sounds a lot better. Um, I, at that point, I knew I needed to do something. And, and I just remember how supportive he was that it, just mentioning that, you know, people get better from these problems and you can get better. And this is a, a good option for you to start down that road. And to me, that really highlights the importance of top down support, um, particularly when it comes to to things like substance use that we know is such a big problem in the fire service that that we're all probably on some level guilty of promoting or not helping. And then when somebody gets in trouble for it, we kind of turn our back. Um, we've maybe been enabling that behavior for a long time ourselves within our firehouses and putting people to bed and trying to cover up for them and all that out of good intentions, but it, it backfires. And then that person is often all of that. In my case, I was fortunate. I had an option that was supported by the administration. And we also have a very good employee assistance program. Um, so I, I went into that and had a social worker who was culturally competent, which I think is very important when we send our people out to get that type of assistance is 
does this person understand firefighters and police officers and how we view the world? And this guy did. Um, and he recommended that maybe I explore um, Alcoholics Anonymous or uh, Smart Recovery or other programs that were available in this area. Um, so I did. And, and I started going to meetings and went every day, um, talked to my social worker about some underlying issues with traumatic stress and anxiety um, because that also the anxiety drove a lot of my alcohol consumption. And again, fortunately, I, I didn't have DTs or I didn't really have, have withdrawal the way a lot of people with alcohol use disorder or opioid use disorder normally have. So I didn't have to go into a detox center, um, but I was off for probably close to a month, but I was able to use sick leave rather than being suspended without pay. So that was a, another big benefit that I was still able to <coughs> bring home a check and put food on the table while I got better. Um, and I, I haven't had a drink since, and that was back, uh, it was St. Patrick's Day of 2012 was when I had my last drink. So um, I'm almost up to, here in a couple of weeks will be 3,000 days sober, um, which there was a time I couldn't imagine 12 hours sober being off duty. So to hit 3,000 days is a milestone. So, but it all stemmed from working for an agency that didn't just cut me loose as a problem. They recognized that I had, you know, a disease process going on and that it was treatable. No. Right. I had to be responsible for it. Just like anybody with a medical condition, you can't, you know, you know, you got to own it. And I did, but they gave me that chance. Um, and I'll be forever grateful for that because that, that made all the difference in my life and my family's life. Wow. 3000 days. That's pretty incredible. Um, yeah. Congra congratulations on that. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, you. you know, clearly, clearly management was supportive of you. They, they wanted you to come out on the other side. Uh, did you feel that your peers were also supportive as well? I think it, it was kind of split. I, I didn't have any negativity like, oh, you're stupid or you're a loser or anything like that. There wasn't bad talk. But what I did hear some of was, don't worry about it. It could have been any of us. I heard that a lot, um, not just from people within my agency, but other agencies that I knew. And as I got more involved in, in peer support and helping other firefighters, that kind of replayed through my mind that some folks were like, you know, we're, we'll do whatever we can to, to help make sure, you know, we're not going to have alcohol around you or, or whatever. So I had a lot of support in that regard. But I also had that kind of looking back, that weird support that it could have been me, you know, it could happen to any firefighter. So don't sweat it. And you I kinda, think that you, that you kind of sounds was, like you realized you, you weren't alone. The, you other yeah. people had that problem, too. That that was part of it, but then the the kind of the don't worry about it part is what really kind of drove it home for me that that yeah a lot of people have this issue. This is something we actually need to be facing. We got to figure this out in the fire service rather than just accepting that it could have been anybody. We need to ask the question: Why could it have been anybody? And that's where I kind of turned to really get involved um, with behavioral health is to say. That, that, to me, showed how accepted having an alcohol problem was, that one group of people was saying, we'll do whatever we can to, 
to help you stop and another group of people saying don't you know don't feel bad it could have been any of us which was telling like you're getting at that was very telling in itself that how pervasive is this problem and and some research that i've done for some other things about one in three firefighters has a diagnosable alcohol use disorder and that's just alcohol that's not including opioid use and, and other drugs um so the general population is about six percent we're about 30 percent. so it's markedly increased in the fire service and that's comparing those numbers isn't isn't super fair because the general population includes a demographic and other demographics that we really don't have in the fire service but it's still pretty telling that one in three firefighters has some type of alcohol problem is, is pretty remarkable and you said it was six percent for the general population is that right yeah it's a, yeah about six percent so wow yeah, five times higher for us. So that's even if the even if it's not a perfect comparison, when you see a five hundred percent difference, that's still pretty significant. <laughs> you know. Absolutely, I can. But also by reading some of your articles, uh, you could tell you're you're a stat guy. But, but we'll we'll yeah, get to some yeah. of that stuff. We'll get to that stuff kind of <laughs> later on. Um, at what point? did you start actually doing the, the peer support and, and working on the behavioral health and kind of, kind of paying it forward, if you will? Yeah. Um, well, as part of one of the principles of the, the program that I got sober through, uh, service work is a really important element of that. Um, the idea that sobriety is a gift you keep by giving it away. Uh, so helping other people, and, and that could be done in any number of ways, but because I had heard so many times that the whole idea of it could have been could have been me last week, um, and I got lucky it wasn't me. Um, that attitude that it was that common, I wanted to help other firefighters. Like I, I recognized that I clearly wasn't the only person with an alcohol problem in the fire service, right? So I started looking at how I could help other firefighters, um, and our uh, at that time, our department used the critical incident stress management model, and we had a CISM team. Um, so I thought, well, there's there's one way that I can give back. It's not specific to to alcohol use, but helping people deal with traumatic events. Maybe we can give them ways of coping besides alcohol. So in an indirect way, I could help people uh, with drinking issues. So I got involved with our CISM program, and that was about a year after I got sober, um, and that was again, uh, keeping in touch with my social worker. One of the things that he encouraged was to start getting involved in those things, but don't do it too soon. And he always said, have at least a year of sobriety before you try to help other people get sober. So at that one year mark, I got involved with our CISM program, um, did the, the week-long training through the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation. And then Probably about a year after that, we switched our model from critical incident stress management to a peer support model, uh, which operates a little bit differently. It's um, and and the the CISM model has developed since then, and then they actually parallel each other in a lot of ways. But at the time, peer support was you know you could you would do peer support for things besides traumatic events. Um, so if somebody was going through a divorce, you could help them navigate that system or somebody with an alcohol problem, you could talk to them about different options they may have. So we, we made that transition to peer support. And that was, I guess, 2013 that 
I got involved 2014 when we made that switch. Um, and it just kind of developed from there where I started as, as a peer out in the companies. Um, and we kept, we basically operated completely independent of the city. Um, at that time, there wasn't a lot of support within the fire department for that type of thing. Uh, there was still a lot of uh, old school attitude about it. Um, that if you need those things, great, but we're not going to provide it kind of attitude. Fortunately, we did, again, we had a really good EAP, um, but I think in many ways, that's kind of how the city viewed their responsibility is. We provide the EAP, anything beyond that, you guys can figure out yourself. Uh, well, that's, go no, ahead, go sorry. Ahead. No, no, go, no, please go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, you, I mean, we're just talking what probably seven years ago, six, seven years ago to have that yeah. attitude and you fast forward to where you are now, where that your, your position, your, your 40 hour captain that's in, in charge of, of wellness and you have a chief above you. That's, that's also in charge of wellness. Is that, that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And that was, so we, we, we had a change of administration where uh, chief Malone was named chief and he is uh, all in on behavioral health. Uh, he, uh, we're, we're a member of the wellness fitness initiative or one of the task force members. So one of the, the original 10 cities that got involved with the wellness fitness initiative with the IAFF and the IAFC and behavioral health in the third edition of the WFI, there was a behavioral health component added to that. And chief Malone was like, well, that's our responsibility then to make sure that we're doing what we have to do for behavioral health. Um, so, yeah, in a matter of just basically a two-year period, we went from an eight, uh, a team that operated completely outside of the parameters of the, the department to try and help our own people to a full-time battalion chief uh, who oversees our uh, wellness program, which is peer support, cancer support, chaplain program, and mentorship program, um, a coordinator of wellness and support, which is my position. And we're both full-time 40 hours a week. And then we have three paid peers on every shift um, who can handle the phone calls and, and going out and visiting the firehouses. And um, they, uh, the city put me through training to become a certified recovery specialist and a certified addiction peer recovery coach so that I could sit down with firefighters with substance use disorders and, and hey, let's figure out how you want to get sober and how do we make it happen? What are your obstacles going to be? How do we remove those obstacles? Um, and I, you know, I would put our program at the top of the heap. We, and we, it's just been a couple of years that we really hit it hard, but again, it shows how important top down support for these programs are because people are afraid to reach out and ask for help. Um, and a big part of that is they're afraid they're going to get retaliated against. But when your chief is saying, we need to do more for our firefighters' behavioral health. I mean, that's a paradigm shift. Now firefighters know that I don't have to be scared to ask for help because the chief of this agency says it's okay to get it. So that, I mean, huge game changer. Uh, absolutely, and that's and we started the fire service very very close, and you know, same years, I guess. Uh, what two thousand two thousand one for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. For for in yeah same here so yeah that is dr dramatically different than the way we started things but that's oh, yeah. that's great that that is absolutely great I'm glad we're heading that direction 
I wanted to touch with you on, um, you know, you got into all this behavioral health kind of through the alcohol um, mm -hmm. road, but now you, you've branched off and you're doing a little bit of kind of everything. And, and mm -hmm. your department, again, like you said, has been part of the, you know, flagship IFF wellness fitness initiative with the, with the IFAC. Um, you were, uh, your department, I was actually privileged to be part of the FCSN white paper back in what, two, 2013 in which mm -hmm. your department hosted it. So, you know, you're doing the cancer stuff as well. So peer fitness, peer support, behavioral health, you guys are all on top of that. But I wanted to kind of get into some kind of specific um, different items that you've, mm -hmm. you've uh, touched on in different articles or you spoke of be before, and you can kind of just um, discuss that if you don't mind, if you're up for that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So um, one of the one of the ones I just you just because you just had like two articles come out earlier this month. One of them talked about stress and cancer. Mm -hmm. And I talk about cancer prevention all the time. And one of the things that I never really talked about and it made complete sense was stress. Could you kind of yeah. go into that? Yeah, I mean, there's. From what I found, there are a few different ways that we really need to look at stress and its impact on cancer. And, and you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that there's a definitive link that stress causes cancer. But if we look at how cancer grows, I, I absolutely believe that stress provides the fertilizer, right? Or stress can be the gasoline to fuel the whole thing. Um, we know that the stress response within the body releases a lot of chemicals. And those chemicals can impact our immune system. And, you know, cancer, we have cancer cells in our body all the time. We, you know, we have free radicals. We have <coughs> those cells that mutate. But our immune system knocks them out. Our T cells and things like that are available to attack those anomalies. And, and that we never even realize is going on in our body. But being under a continuous heightened stress response depletes those resources. It actually, the, the inflammatory response of stress causes the immune system to malfunction. Now that's great in the short run. If you're, if you've got a bear chasing you down, it really doesn't matter if you have a cancer cell floating around in your body at that moment, you've got to get away from the bear because nothing else matters, right? Sure. But long term, once you're away from that threat, your immune system needs to be able to kick back up and take care of that free radical or whatever's in your body that's going to cause harm when you're under constant stress and we were at the firehouse that's how we are i always say look at how you take a shower at the firehouse versus how you take a shower at home and at the firehouse you know as soon i got sooner i get soap in my hair i gotta hurry up and get it out like it's lightning quick because we we're constantly rushed at the firehouse whether we realize it or not and constantly being in that rush state increases our stress response so that it's basically our our stress tone is always heightened. Even when we leave the firehouse, it, it's still heightened. We have trouble sleeping. The result of that is that our immune system is really compromised a lot of the time. And that and compromised immune system, you know, prevents our body from being able to attack those cancer cells at an early state because it's just not as efficient. Add to that sleep deprivation um, because our body does a lot of healing while we're sleeping. Um, and 
probably the majority of firefighters have some type of, of sleep disturbance problem. Uh, we know we don't get enough either way, but that also, that inability to repair ourselves only adds to the, the difficulties that our immune system has as far as fighting off things like cancer. So I think, you know, there's just so many tie-ins with that. Um, but that's kind of what I was trying to get at with that article is that stress impacts more than just how we feel. It, it has a direct impact on other endocrine systems, other body systems, structures within our body. And when left unaddressed, it can promote things like cancer. I don't think there's any doubt. So let me ask you this. Uh, and regarding all that, it sounds like when we, even when we come home, we're still, we're still stressed. It takes a while to get back to a normalcy. And by the yeah. time we, we usually do, guess what? It's time to go back into work. Is that, is that accurate? It absolutely is. Um, and there's a, a great book on this, actually. Um, it's called Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. Um, and it's applicable to, to all stripes of public safety. It was written, written for cops, but it's highly applicable to us. And yeah, I mean, we, we come there for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, right? So we're always up at the firehouse and then we come home and then we have that crash where we don't, I don't want to make any decisions and we just really bottom out. And that also impacts our body because now we're slowed down. We have that depressed feeling that impacts our, our body's ability to fight disease as well. And it takes about 48 hours to get through that cycle. And if you work a standard fire shift, at least in the Midwest, you're off for 48. So like you said, as soon as you start to feel better, it's repeated all over again. And there are some things you can do when you come off a shift, like cardio is really good coming off a shift. It can shorten that recovery time. Um, but yeah, our, our, our shift schedule is something that it's not popular to discuss changing, but I think if, if we're really going to get serious about cancer and sleep deprivation and behavioral health problems, um, our, our shift schedule kills us. I don't think there's, there's any two ways about it. And I don't know the best answers for that, but we got to find something because the way we work and, and, and don't sleep is truly killing us, you know, and it, it's going to be a very difficult conversation. Um, which is probably why it's largely been avoided, but you know, there's some such long-term issues with that, that it, I don't think we can ignore it anymore. Uh, absolutely. I have two, two quick, well, one quick thing. And then the other one, I want to dive in a little bit deeper. Number one, on that book you mentioned, Emotional mm -hmm. Survivor, uh, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, I am actually yes. on page 47 right now. <laughs> oh, it's really? Just, it's just ironic that you bring that up, and I, I've actually been the last few days reading this, and it, it is so true what you said. Like, all you got to do is replace police officer with firefighter because it's exactly the same, and this yeah. book absolutely speaks to really my career so far. Yeah. I mean, it's it's absolutely right on. So check it's, that it's out, listeners. Yeah, and and if I could also put a plug for their spouses, um, I think it's just as important for our spouses and our partners because they have questions about why we act like we do, you know. So that book would be a great a great resource, not just for the firefighter, but for the firefighter spouse uh, to kind of get a handle on why we're doing what we're doing. And it's not just because we don't want to listen or make decisions; like there's an actual 
chemical biological reason why we're doing that. But, but yeah, I, as I read that book, I was like, holy moly, this, this is my life I'm reading. It is. I mean, from chapter one, I was like, oh my, this guy knows me. Yeah. Clearly. <laughs> we're buddies. We've hung out before. <laughs> but all right. So, so part two of that is you're talking about the sleep. Um, and I, and I've discussed that on the show here a lot. I've had Jacqueline Toomey from the Re first responder sleep recovery center. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dean Ali has talked about sleep a lot. James Gearing yeah. from behind the shield. That's one of his big things. He's, mm -hmm. and, and I'm on board with it too. He's, he's very adamant that our schedule should be 24 72. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that something that you've even looked at or tried to say, Hey, uh, what are the chances of switching this kind of schedule? I, you know, I haven't made any type of proposal, but I have, I've, I've looked at some of the different models and I think most, most schedules come down on the side of the, the 2472, uh, people who've really looked at it. Uh, there's some, some idea about just doing, um, eight hours, um, you know, the tricky part is no matter what we do, somebody has to be up at night, whether you're working a 24 or you work the eight hour overnight shift, however it works out, somebody has to be up at night. And how can we best deal with that? Because that's unavoidable. Like somebody has to be here. And I do think that the 2472 is probably the best way to deal with that because it gives you that extra day. So that if we, if we're saying it takes us 48 hours to recover, rather than recovering and then going right back into it, then we have, if we do the 72, we've got that extra 24 hours to actually heal up, right? And get better for a whole day, rather than just getting back to our baseline and getting creamed again, we can actually get back to our baseline, maybe actually see some improvement over that next 24 hours, hopefully, and then get back into a 24 hour shift. Um, but it's, you know, it's not natural for us to be up at night and somebody has to be up. So I think that 2472 deals with that in the most effective way. I think that we're heading for change, but I'm not sure that that change will happen while you and I are still working. Yeah, I, I don't envision it will. I mean, it's the real conversation you have to have within a lot of agencies is, particularly if you're in an agency that has a Kelly day, where you get those five days off in a row, if you switch to 2472, you're probably going to have to give up that Kelly day. I mean, that's just how to avoid hiring other people and that type of thing from a budgetary standpoint. And then that starts to impact everybody's side job, right? Um, and that's, to me, that's the real threat with, with tinkering with the schedule is what's that going to do to my part-time work, which is a legitimate concern. I'm not saying it isn't because um, that's a lot of people's, you know, you count on that money. Um, it's still, it's, it's less days going in it's less hours worked i mean it's a 42 hour work week that way where you're you know yeah. you and i are both working 48 hours or some people working 56 hours or even more yeah uh, so it's you know it's in line with the the general population works yeah 40, 40 hours but we we basically work a whole day or two more than them a week yeah you're right yeah it's uh and at some point and it, you know it's I, you look at the analogy of a loaf of bread. Sometimes you get the loaf of bread one slice at a time. Um, and I think that's where we are. When we look at the strides we've made with, with cancer prevention and, and behavioral health and physical fitness and screening tools that we use in our annual physicals, 
we've come a long way in the last, I know in the last 19 years since I got on the job, we've come a long way. Um, but it hasn't, it's been very piecemeal. And I think this is just part of that where as we become more advanced and, and recognize the costs associated with not being healthy, we'll get there. But like you said, I, I don't think it's going to happen before I retire. Yeah. So I wanted to go into another subject with you, um, along again, along the same lines of wellness. Um, I know this is a, something you've written articles about. I know you, you spoke at Redmond about this before. I'd like for you, I know it's still taboo, but the, the fact that we're talking about it is trying to get rid of that stigma. Let's, you know, could you dive into some suicide stuff for me, please? Yeah. Yeah. Anything you want to talk about? Um, anything in particular or again, you were, you were a stat guy. That's what, that's what I took away from, uh, the one article I read and, and some of the Redmond mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, I think it's important to share like, again, how the fire service relates to suicide, uh, compared to, again, that general population and how, you know, it's clear that we need to do something about it. Like this is, it's, mm -hmm. we need to make a stand. Uh, you, yeah, I think you, yeah. you mentioned, the. Uh, the the airplane um, was it? Uh, um, you had three hundred people die on an airplane. Um, I want to screw this up. Was it you that? Was it you or was I don't it know if that book? was me or not? It might have been somebody else. But it I was know, in I this. Know what you're talking about? It was in this that damn. Happened. It was in this damn emotional support book uh, mm -hmm. for the for the police officers that I read. That's what it is. Between yeah. reading your stuff and this stuff, now I'm confusing myself and and I'm being the asshole <laughs> so <laughs> not at all but i and, and i know what you're talking about if if that many people died we'd ground all the jets in america and say we got to figure this out and we basically did that right when the 737s had problems like two or three crashed i can't remember the number significant number of people died but there was a result of that they grounded everything and so let's figure all it right. out i, I found calling... I, yeah you're right on i found it it, it wasn't you i'm sorry uh, luckily, though, it's but, in that book that we've been promoting. So. Yes. If, uh, and I quote, if a 747 airliner with approximately 300 passengers on board crashed each year, the Federal Aviation Administration would ground 747s until the problem was discovered and corrected. Yet we lose 300 police officers every year to suicide, and we think that is just a cost of doing business. Yeah. So, again, this book was written, I think, in 2002. So you're right about I mean, this is pretty recent, though. I mean, yeah, it's the yeah. same, same thing. We literally saw that happen. And, and yeah, I mean, when we look at the numbers there, they're a little tricky because there's a lot we don't know. Um, the article I wrote uh, discussing suicide and suicide prevention kind of dove into the comparisons between us and the general population. Um, you know, the general population is made up of uh, men and women and kids and people of all nationalities, different age groups, um, and comparing that suicide rate to our suicide rate isn't really fair. Um, it's, and beyond fair, it's not really scientific. Uh, we need to compare our suicide rate to the suicide rate among a similar demographic. And we all know the fire service in the United States is uh, overwhelmingly white male, uh, and we're all working age. And when you look at suicide statistics, um, with the exception of Alaska Natives and Native Americans, the highest risk pop, um, racial group for suicide is whites. Um, and then overwhelmingly, men are also more likely to die by suicide, particularly if they're working age. So we are like right at the 
the pinnacle of risk groups for suicide in the fire service. So actually, when you compare our suicide rate to um, suicide rates of the general population made up of uh, working age white males, a demographic more similar to the fire service, we see that the suicide rate in the fire service is probably a bit lower than the comparable group of the general population. Um, so that's surprising to a lot of people and a little controversial perhaps. Um, the, the studies that have been done with this uh, have been, one was with Philadelphia, um, another looked at Chicago. Um, so the areas that have been studied obviously have been very large urban fire departments. So we don't know exactly how that translates to small rural volunteer departments. You know, maybe the rates are lower in those bigger departments because they have more resources or you're more able to get help anonymously where I can walk into a therapist's office and don't have to worry about a coworker or a family member or somebody seeing me walking in because the city's so big, nobody's paying attention. Um, so those are some limitations with those studies that I think we have to say, you know, these aren't the be all end all uh, of this discussion, but they do cut against, I think, the narrative that um, the suicide rate among firefighters is so much higher than the general population, which is true, but it's not really an apt comparison. Now, having said that, the fact that any firefighters are dying by suicide is reason to do something because those deaths can be prevented on some level. There are things we can be doing to prevent suicide. So no matter how many of us are dying by suicide, that's the focus. You know, we here in Indy for the last, well, for almost the last 20 years, the leading cause of death for active duty firefighters was suicide in Indianapolis. Um, so we know it's an issue. Um, and that's the bottom line for me is how do we get at that? Because we have one somewhere between every two and four years, I, I think is our average in Indianapolis that will have a firefighter die by suicide. So um, still a tremendous problem, even regardless of what the comparisons may be. Brandon, what are some of the things that you know, you guys are trying to do to prevent that for your department? Well, suicide is the end result of other things, right? It's suicide's not a behavioral health disorder in itself. It's um, a way to stop whatever pain is leading to that decision. And that pain could be any number of things from traumatic memories to financial problems to cancer. So a couple of different approaches. One is educating our people about suicide, how to ask the question, how to maybe pick up on what we can be looking for in, in firefighters like isolation, um, talking about death, you know, things like that. How do we pick up that somebody may be suicidal? And then how do we ask them the question? And then what do we do if we get that yes or that maybe as far as I'm thinking about suicide, because I think that's the, we'll ask a patient on the street without a second thought where you're trying to kill yourself. And we don't think twice about it, but we, we get nervous when it's one of us because what if you say yes and I don't know what to do? So that's one part of what we've done here is try and educate. This is how you ask. These are our resources. We have a peer support team. If somebody's suicidal, there's some 24-hour hotlines. You can call Chief Abernathy. You can call Captain Dryman. We'll get somebody to you, and once we get there, we can take over, and it's out of your hands. You don't have to worry about it anymore. We can we can take care of the person and get them where they need to be. 
so there's that education piece as far as all that, but that's still fairly reactive, right? We're at the, towards the end of the road whenever we're asking those questions. So the other part is to develop resources and avenues for our people to get help way before they reach that point of suicide. Um, and that's something that, that we work hard on with our agency is to figure out, do we have community resources that are open 24 hours um, that we can get our people into? How do we develop relationships with them so that we can use the side door or the back door and not go through the lobby? Uh, because we know that that's a deterrent for our people to get help. Are there treatment programs for alcohol and things like that that specialize in public safety, that have public safety programs so that early on, if somebody has a drug or alcohol problem or a behavioral health issue, that we can get them the help early within a program that understands us and is culturally competent. Um, and how do we develop those relationships and promote it within our agency? Um, so we do that through incumbent training. Um, you know, I try to write articles. We get, um, we get space in our IFF Local 416 um, publication, The Helmet, where they let us put an article in on behavioral health and, and resources that are available. So it's spreading that word and letting people know you're not going to be disciplined um, if you need help. We work with the other parts of the administration to make sure that you get the time you need. Um, we actually have a general order within our fire department um, that's brand new. And again, it's something that Chief Malone was on board for 100%. Um, I wrote up a confidentiality order that basically says, if somebody is talking to peer support, no one else within the fire department is allowed to talk to a peer support about what that person said. So even if they're under investigation by, by the department, those investigators aren't allowed to talk to peer support about what that person has said to them. We are off limits. Now, if it's law enforcement and it's written in, you know, state law is state law, but as far as within our agency, you are guaranteed confidentiality um, with the exception of things that were mandated to report by law. Um, you can talk to us about your heroin problem and if you know somebody else within the agency asks us about that as part of an, an interagency investigation they don't come to us because we're we're insulated from that we don't give that information out so that was a big boost for our program to let people know that we take confidentiality serious if you come to us we're going to get you the help and we can do it quietly um and get back to work and, and oftentimes people don't even know why you were gone um, so that's, that's what we've been doing and, and having a fair amount of success with it. Um, we're really proud. There's always room for improvement, but we're pretty proud of what we've been able to put in place. I love that you were able to basically take away that barrier, you know, any, any yeah. type of barrier that where somebody who wants to get help, but they're not quite sure if, if they'll get in trouble or if they'll, this person will really tell on them or not. The fact that you're able to do that, I think, makes it easier to seek help. So yeah, yeah. And, it, and again, that. that's and that's a top-down thing, right? I mean, that that comes from a chief who looks at this and says, "Look, these are just like any other illness or injury. People don't ever worry about, you know, if their arm's broken or they need shoulder surgery. They get it done so they can get better and get back to work." And he recognizes, "Why are we treating this differently? If this is a barrier to get, getting our people better." let's remove that barrier because we want healthy employees. We want our people to have great lives and strong families and a good retirement. So 
let's get out of our own way. And if that's the problem, let's fix it. And, and I mean, to his credit, that is exactly what he did. Like, we're truly fortunate to, to have that type of support from our chief administrator. Uh, that, yeah, it is powerful knowing that you have, you know, the guy who matters has your back for all this stuff. He cares yeah. that, you know, it's, it's clear that Chief Malone actually cares about your firefighters. Yeah. So, and that's, that's huge. I don't know how many chiefs are really out there preaching that or, or showing that. Yeah. That's the thing is is showing it. Right. I mean, a lot of them talk the talk, but a fair amount don't walk the walk. And we, we have somebody who walks right beside us as we figure this out to the point where, um, you know, we have a joint initiative right now where the coordinator of our fitness unit and myself are going through a 200 hour yoga, yoga teacher training. Um, he and I do yoga for different reasons. He does it for athletic reasons with with stretching. Um, I do it from a behavioral health, uh, spiritual standpoint with a more all encompassing yogic philosophy, if you will. But those, those two components can work together. We were both part of the wellness fitness initiative and chief Malone said, that's how else can we improve how these two programs work together? And we made the proposal that maybe yoga would be a good way because we could get the athletic side of it as well as a mindfulness behavioral health health component. Um, And since we're full time, 40 hours, we can offer yoga classes to our firefighters um, in our wellness fitness facility. And he's like, yeah, figure out how to how to get it done and, and we'll do it. So and he and I are in that training now. So when we get out in at the end of July, we're going to put together our, our package to start offering yoga to, to first responders within uh, the city of Indianapolis uh, on site with training and, and classes given by other firefighters. So but again, that's, you know, that's unique within the fire service. And we recognize how fortunate we are to have that because that's I mean, those that's where we shift the paradigm. Um, and, and we're doing it. Oh, I, I love that. I mean, it's, it's crazy to, again, think of where we started to where we are now. You're 2020 and we're actually doing yoga at the firehouse. I mean, yeah, you know, which is great. I'm, I did my, uh, TDPY yoga session earlier today. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's, that's, I get, he's a wrestler. I I like wrestling. People know that. So. I'm a I'm a dork. Anyway, uh, but going back to your peer support stuff, I know uh, an article, another article you wrote for the IFF. I, I love some of the stuff that you guys are doing, where if if a member's off for more than two weeks, you're checking out on in on them. You know that's mm-hmm. that's something that's something that we're not doing that we probably should do. Uh, other things, you know, talking to new recruits and also talking to newly promoted officers, actually having a behavioral health segment in their training is, is pretty significant as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we try and, and hit people throughout their career. So we, we do some incumbent training where everybody within the agency gets some behavioral health stuff. Um, the recruits, you know, that's when we look at RIT teams, when you and I first got involved in the fire service back in the early, or at least for me as a volunteer, RIT teams were first starting to become a thing back in the early nineties, which is when I really started volunteering. And at the time, that was the dumbest idea anybody had, that you're going to leave a crew standing in the yard doing nothing while everybody else is fighting fire. That's a stupid waste of resources. Fast forward several years, and now it's just the opposite. If you don't have a RIT team standing in the yard, 
we think that's a stupid idea because what a, we've seen how valuable they are. Same thing with wearing air packs. Used to be nobody wore air packs. Now we wear air packs through overhaul. This behavioral health and all this is the same way. So how do we make that, that shift? Where do we put that line in the sand? And we do it. In, um, you make that part of somebody's career and part of their expectation when they get on the job. So we get our time uh, yeah, with the recruits to talk about what to look for. What do we have available? This is how our behavioral health system works within the fire department. This is how you get help. Um, and we do our incumbent trainings. And as you mentioned, when officers are promoted, they go through an officer school um, to learn the finer points of of being a lieutenant or a captain or a chief in IFD. And we get time in front of them to talk about, hey, your job is crew safety. Your crew saves the world. You save your crew. So we need you to to do that. We need you to, to pay attention to these behavioral health issues and the potential risks involved because it's a safety issue. And if you notice it, get your people help. Um, and this is how you do that. Um, we also, you know, when our last suicide is a good example that we don't run away from our those problems. We don't put our head in the sand. And it's, again, another important point that when we had that suicide, I got with our media relations chief uh, to discuss how do we put the word out. Because in the past, when we had a, a fire, fire department suicide, we just kind of didn't talk about it. And that's the wrong approach. Um, so we, we put out a mailer said, you know, this was a suicide and these are resources that are available. Um, so we didn't hide from it, right? We, this stuff looms in darkness. So once we put some light on it and said, these things happen, suicide is preventable. This is how we can go about helping each other. These are the resources we have available here. These are some anonymous resources. And we put that out to the people in the aftermath of that suicide, because I mean, we recognize the suicide post-tension is in reality, suicide prevention by the way we respond to a suicide lays the groundwork for preventing future suicides. Um, so, you know, I like to think that we're, we're trying to do the right things here to, to set things up, you know, for the best outcomes. And, and so far we, you know, I feel like we're getting there. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it certainly sounds that way. But uh, despite all your accomplishments, I know you know there's a lot more work to do. And it's clear that you're oh, doing yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, again, you know, it's where we, it's where does the next innovation come from? What can we learn from looking at other industries? Um, the corporate world, you know, part of, I'm concerned about families. Um, and developing family programs, developing retiree programming. You know, guys turn in their badge or gals turn in their, their badge and their boots and walk out the door and oftentimes are lost because they've just turned in their whole identity. They don't have a life outside of the fire service or they struggle financially and because they're not city employees anymore, you know, what now? What resources do I have to help me? And that's our um, local uh, worked with our employee assistance program to actually put in place uh, free visits for retirees up to a certain number because we went and said, you know, this is something we, they're not city employees anymore, but can the local help out with getting some assistance in place for our retirees? And they said, yeah, we'll, we'll talk to the EAP and see what we can get put in place. And they now our retirees can get some visits with the behavioral health professional after they retire if they need that. Um, so, 
again, it's what can we do next? Who who isn't being addressed that we can be addressing, and how do we get that in place? So, like you said, there's still a lot of work to be done. It'll never stop, um, but it's picking out the the next step uh, is the key, you, you are, and then doing something about it. Yeah, you are certainly laying the groundwork. You know, I mean, you're you're doing a, a lot of the big stuff, and you're just going to have to have the individuals that follow you, you know, pick up the ball and keep running with it. Yeah. Uh, one of my one of my assistant chiefs, uh, he always talks about how when we leave the job, we we a lot of times we leave broken. So yeah. I, I appreciate what you're doing uh, for your retirees. And I know that's something that we're going to be working on too, as well. Um, I, I know uh, I've gone over my time here with you. I wanted to still grill you on my 25 questions, not asking 25 questions, but doing a few of those at least. <laughs> okay. All right. So if you're up for that, all you got to do, pick a number and I'll read you the question and we'll kind of go from there. All right. How about number 22? All right, so you're gonna have to you're gonna have to think about this because it's not anything that we're allowed to do right now. But what's your favorite place for vacation? Once all this stuff ends and you're able to go mm -hmm. anywhere and it's you, we get to some kind of normalcy, where would you want to go? Boy, you know, I I I really like the mountains. Um, I went to to Jackson Hole, Wyoming last year and absolutely loved it, but. I live a lot closer to Tennessee and I really like the Smoky Mountains. So probably the Smokies because um, I like the woods too. So somewhere in the Smoky Mountains would be my ideal vacation with a cabin, but not like a really real cabin where I have to do a lot of stuff. <laughs> but a cabin <laughs> on the outside with a satellite and a full kitchen and all that on the end. And a hot tub. Um, and a hot tub. Absolutely. So yeah, something like that would be, would hit the spot right about now. Nice. I like that. All right, well, let's do another one here. All right, um, let's go with 13. Favorite movie? Wow. Favorite movie? I would say Waiting for Guffman. Um, it's, uh, I don't know if you have you ever heard of Waiting for Guffman? I can't say I have. I'm it's, intrigued, uh, though. Go, go yeah, ahead. It's uh, Christopher Guest. Uh, this is Spinal Tap, Best in Show, uh, okay. Mighty Wind, all those. It's uh, one of theirs they did where they, they're in Blaine, Missouri, and it's uh, historical. They're, they're putting on a play about how Blaine was founded. Um, just absolutely ridiculous, but really, really well, well done. And actually, uh, Fred Willard, who just died, was, was one of the stars of that movie. Um, just fantastic. Waiting for Guffman. Uh, I don't know if it's available on any streaming service. I'm sure it is. Uh, but, yeah, definitely worth checking out. Nice, nice. I, I Well, I like those other stuff, so I should. I can't believe I haven't heard of that. I'm not familiar with that. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, same concept where they talk to the camera and just have those kind of <laughs> weird, uncomfortable monologues that you're like, what is going on here? So. Perfect. All right. I'll get you out of here on one more. Okay. Um, number five. You have a favorite quote favorite boy that's a that's probably the toughest one favorite quote i probably would have a million if i wasn't thinking about it does that make sense <laughs> <laughs> um 
Absolutely. If you can't think of one, we could do another question. Let's let's do another question. That that's uh, I'm not capable of coming up with that on the spot. I apologize. <laughs> no. Number seven. Lucky number seven. Okay. Uh, what is something popular now, but everyone will look back in five years from now and think that it's stupid or embarrassing? Hmm. See, what my problem is, is that I live in such a narrow world that everything I do, I think is cool and probably always will be. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm really falling through the cracks here, Jim. All right. All right. I'll tell you what. Let me give me a second. <laughs> I'll no. All right. I'm going to pick one for you. And this is this. Okay. This, I think I'm hoping you'll be able to answer. All right. Favorite album? Favorite album? I would say, yeah, I got that one. Uh, Heaven Nor Hell by Volbeat. Um, uh, Danish, kind of heavy metal, um, kind of rockabilly. Uh, interesting mix, but yeah, anything by Volbeat. But I think the the Heaven Nor Hell album is dynamite. I, I think I've seen them a few times at Rock on the Range. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they do that in Bakken and, and that big festival circuit. So, yeah. Nice. All right. Whew, well, you at, least, me at, least, out. at least I knew that one there. I could help <laughs> you out with that one. Oh, that's good stuff. All right. Well, um, if my listeners had any questions for you, where could they track you down? Um, I'm, on, I'm on Facebook. Um, they just search my name, Brandon Dryman. I should come up. I'm at B underscore Dryman, D-R-E-I-M-A-N on Twitter. Uh, so both of those are, are pretty good ways to get a hold on me, and then I can um, take it from there as far as you can inst- you know, message me on Facebook or on Twitter and, and love to hear from people. Perfect. Well, again, thank you for your time on here. I, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, for all my listeners, don't forget to subscribe, comment, five-star reviews share um you know get this word out you know brandon obviously is uh, a wealth of knowledge when it comes to all this this wellness stuff and i and i love that that's your job that's all you yeah. have to do is is that that's uh to me i'm, I'm actually pretty jealous so <laughs> it's a good gig it is so again thank you for your time and uh listeners i'll uh, i'll talk to you next week take care